The 80th National Folk Festival has announced the first six acts to perform in downtown Salisbury this year. Welcome to Delmarva Today. This is Dodd Rush. The celebration comes after last year's event was canceled due to the COVID-19 pandemic. First announced acts range from bluegrass and blues to Afro-Colombian and Cajun music. Thousands are expected to attend the event, which will include many more acts as well as local vendors. In our studio this morning is Caroline O'Hare. She's a local manager for the festival. And on the phone with us is Blaine Wade. He's the Associate Director for the National Council for the Traditional Arts. And welcome to the program. Thank you. Good morning, Don. So, Caroline, I want to start with you. And um, <clears throat> I guess it's been a, a bit of a long year. You couldn't do it last year. <clears throat> what do the things look like at this point for, for the festival? Well, last year we were able to have the virtual celebration, which obviously is not the same thing as an in-person event. Uh, this year, when the decision was made that we were able to have the in-person event, uh, that uh, happened in April. We um, we are now on a, an accelerated pace to prep for this festival because usually we are prepping uh, starting in November, December. Uh, but uh, I actually just had a, an amazing uh, discussion with our new volunteer co-coordinators. We're getting our team leaders back together. So the next big uh, push for this festival will be getting our volunteers uh, back. And we hope to have uh, volunteer shifts open by mid to late June. And we'll share that with everyone on social media and on our website and, and whatnot. But uh, that's the next uh, big piece, at least for me. We have artists that are being announced. We have another group coming up soon. We are also getting all our vendors uh, in, our food vendors, as well as our production vendors. Uh, this year, we won't have a marketplace on site, but we're going to find opportunities for our marketplace artisans that have been with us in the past to promote them online or to find other opportunities to promote uh, their um, their art. Uh, they are fantastic people, and we had to um, scale down the scope of this festival so that if in the future local or state health agencies placed <coughs> additional restrictions on us, we would be able to manage uh, the festival at this size. So there were some things that... Uh, uh, can't happen this year. One of them, uh, another one is the family area. Uh, however, we will have a ton of family-centered uh, uh, performances and opportunities for people of all ages to enjoy the festival this year. Will there be some requirement for masks or what's the situation with that? What kind of precautions should individuals take? We are developing a COVID mitigation plan with our local health uh, authorities, with the Salisbury Fire Department and with other agencies. And it's a very fluid um, <laughs> fluid plan because one week we, oh, we plan something and then the next week uh, it changes uh, depending on what's happening with state regulations. So uh, right now we are working on uh, crew being vaccinated or masked, vendors as well. However, we'll have a uh, formal plan that we'll be able to provide at the end of July to the public because that will be much closer to the festival and we'll know which way uh, the situation's going. Uh, but at the moment, we encourage 
everyone to get vaccinated. How amazing is it that we can come together finally together again because so many people are getting vaccinated. So if you have the chance to get vaccinated, please do it. Um, if you don't, please, I would love it if you were, would wear a mask so to so that we can continue to have these incredible in-person events. We had a wonderful third Friday uh, just the other week. Uh, and um, I saw a lot of people, some people were masked and those people, that's their choice. And I uh, am very happy that they feel comfortable doing that. Um, I, uh, I wear a mask where I go into certain uh, businesses that require it, like the Together Cafe, uh, ask that um, people come in and wear masks. I'm totally fine with that. All their employees do that as well. So we are looking at ways to keep the festival safe, to keep our artists and crew safe and our volunteers, as well as all participants and all the attendees. So uh, that's going to be encouraging people to get vaccinated, um, encouraging people to wear masks if they're not or if they'd like to, uh, encourage social distancing. And uh, there are a few other things that will come into play depending on where we are. Elaine, I want to uh, turn to you and to some of the acts that uh, was announced. And I want to go first to the to the bluegrass uh, band from uh, Nashville. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, the the, uh, the the band and its uh, its history. Sure. So we're really thrilled. Uh, you know, this year is the 80th National Folk Festival, um, which is a, a really important milestone for the festival, and we could not be more thrilled to be celebrating it in our home state of Maryland. And it's a chance to work with a lot of artists we've had history uh, with going way back and continue celebrating the nation's finest traditional artists and one of the names that comes to the top of that list is uh, Del McCory who is a, a bluegrass uh, really a groundbreaking bluegrass artist originally from uh, York Pennsylvania right there on the border with Maryland and his roots is just a fascinating story his he bridges the earliest roots of the music he performed with Bill Monroe who uh, is one of the few people who you can say created his own form of music uh, when he merged different threads and, and bluegrass emerged out of that. Dell cut his teeth playing with, with Bill Monroe in his early years, and, and now for oh, rough, a little over 20 years he's been fronting his own family band with two of his sons um, playing with him. Uh, we have Ronnie and Rob, as well as uh, others, uh, and it's just a, a really wonderful group that with these deep roots that their dad represents, also bridges to the um, innovative core that's at the heart of bluegrass and how it's impacted groups like Fish and the Grateful Dead and Widespread Panic who have taken the form of bluegrass and applied it to what's you know considered progressive rock or jam band music. And Dell has made a home for that with a festival he's been hosting out in Western Maryland in the Cumberland area uh, for, for many years now, a Dell Fest. So it's just an amazing artist, deep roots in the music, a wonderful tenor voice, great guitarist, um, fabulous band, family band backing them up, who perform on their own as the Traveler McCoury's, who also is breaking new ground for the music. So he really is, is a great way to represent what the National Folk Festival is all about. Oh, one of the things, I guess, uh, Ronnie the Sun says that my dad never once told me to practice. He always taught by example, and I always saw the joy that he had on stage, and it's just kind of infectious. And as I watched, by the way, the video, you could probably, you could really see that. Yeah, no, I mean, there's there's the family bond, I mean, I'm sure, playing uh, and, you know, having come up learning from their dad and playing with them on stage, that's part of that infectious energy. But there's also just that, 
you know, I think embodied in that quote you just referenced of, of not practicing is is taking the the knowledge of the music and and being in the moment and letting it letting it um, see where it takes you. But starting with the basic structures of bluegrass, and that's what bluegrass is all about. There's a structure to it, but within that, there's improvisation, which is why uh, in a lot of ways you could compare it to jazz and and then how it was able to bridge to something like to the Grateful Dead and and those other groups to expand what the music was about. And but I think that quote really embodies a lot of that is how you, you take your knowledge of the basic structure and then on stage you 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 feel the organic energy of the moment and see where it takes you. And that definitely comes across in their performances. Finally, along those lines, um, so as watched, there are really sort of interesting performances uh, on the mandolin, uh, the fiddle, the banjo. Tell me a little bit about that, because they, they of course, obviously do sort of this music break in between the verses, and uh, and each one, each uh, instrument is featured in and of itself with some rather remarkable dexterity. Yeah, and that's, that's the, again, that sort of core of the bluegrass structure is... You, you have everybody playing in unison uh, with rich layers of the music, which really come across in the audio sample we actually have up on, on the website. I love that one because it's so densely, so much is going on in that. It's just so rich. But then as they hit the vote, you know, in between the, the vocal sections, as they hit the breaks, each instrumentalist has a chance to step to the front and um, be featured for a bit before then winding it back and, and pulling it back into the whole, you know, sort of the, the cohesiveness of the group. Uh, and that's what bluegrass has been about uh, from the beginning, um, and it's it's just a wonderfully rich music that that embodies that tension between the the being part of a group but having a chance to step out and be a featured uh, individual for a bit. So let's hear a little bit of it. switch gears here to something uh, far different, which is uh, some Afro-Colombian uh, music, um, uh, Grupo Rebulo. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, that particular group, and in particular, uh, this really interesting sort of um, flute, as it were, made from a cactus stem. Yeah, so that's, um, that's actually played by one of the group's founding members, and uh, one of the two people that festival goers will see out front leading with the singing, and uh, just being out there along with his uh, partner uh, in life, Joanna Castaneda. And, uh, yeah, Ronald plays this this wonderful uh, flute made out of, like you said, hollowed cactus stem called the gaita. And um, it's a long, long flute as they go, and it plays it, you know, pointing down towards his waist. Um, and it's just a really beautiful instrument that adds a lot to what they do. And, and it's kind of a way to, to note, they have deep roots in Afro-Colombian tradition, especially traditions coming out of of the northern Caribbean coast there on Colombia, where there's a, a long history of African influence, um, African communities, and um, that African heritage is really pronounced. 
And so they, they take a lot of what's at the core and root of that tradition and yet bring into it uh, a rhythm section. They've got a bass, drums, a horn section. So, again, these really rich textures and, and taking these traditions in new directions. But if you really get down to it uh, at the core of what they do are the traditional uh, instruments like the, the flute you referenced, uh, traditional percussion instruments, and all of it uh, harkening back to their roots in this northern Colombian coastal region around Barranquilla, um, where, where especially Ronald and the other founding member, Morris Kenyatte, uh, fabulous percussionist whose, whose family roots in, in percussion go way back, um, that they have really brought to the fore with this group, with their roots in that region. And there's a sort of a roots, I guess, in terms of um, the town in particular, Cecilio, um, which was founded actually by runaway slaves, that there's a, 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 with a mix of cultures, not only just simply um, Spanish, but as you say, uh, Afro-American and, and so on. I mean, there seems to be this sort of blend, as it were, to a, a, a sound that could sound just as easily in some modern um, uh, radio station as opposed to semi being so uh, described as eclectic. Yeah, you know, that's you know what you see in a lot of groups you're working with from from be it Latin America, South America, uh, even probably fair to say parts of the Southwest here. But uh, the, this merging or, or intersection of cultures that happened, um, you know, through a lot of what was very unfortunate about the colonial period uh, and what was happening. Uh, but you have a meeting of cultures there with what's coming being forcibly but brought over from from West Africa. Uh, than the Spanish influence, because they were so prominent in settling uh, those parts of the, the world and the region, and then the indigenous influences was there, were there, and that's uh, that's really those that core of what is, is there with Grupo Revolu, and uh, then now having they and I should note they're in New York City, they're the preeminent Afro-Colombian group in in the United States, and have have been here for for quite some time. Um, and are part of a vibrant community there. So then, then coming in, uh, there are those influences as well, and bringing in for more of those contemporary or modern influences that you noted. So it makes for a really fascinating combination. And this is going to be a group that just really has people energized, and and their their energy from the stage is infectious, and people are going to be moving along. And, and really, just this is going to be a group that probably not a lot of people have heard of, but by the end of the weekend, are going to be talking about uh, as a highlight. Well, let's hear a little of them. Yo conocí a Doña Juana cerca de la orilla del río. Yo conocí a Doña Juana cerca de la orilla del río. Y ahora que yo la conozco, resulta tiene marido. Y ahora que yo la conozco, resulta tiene marido. Juanita, échate pa' allá. Juanita, molestar. Juanita, échate pa' allá. Juanita, molestar. Juanita, échate pa' allá. Juanita, molestar. Juanita, échate pa' allá. Juanita, I want to turn now to uh, some Cajun music, um, the Savoy family. Uh, tell me a little bit about them and, uh, and how they fit into um, this uh, great tradition that comes out of, uh, of Louisiana. Oh, of course. Um, I mean, when it comes to Cajun music and contemporary practitioners who, who have deep roots, I mean, the Savoy family is one of the most well-known, highly respected, accomplished names uh, in Cajun music. And what's really fascinating, and uh, sort of going back to this 
you know, that this is the 80th National Folk Festival, we wanted this to be a chance to really celebrate and and, and bring groups who have a deep history with the organization um, going back into our deeper past, but also uh, newer groups we've worked with. The Savoie family represents the, the former example of that. Um, in fact, Mark and so the group is fronted by the husband and wife, Mark and Anne Savoie, and they actually met at a national folk festival in, uh, I believe, 1976, but the, the mid-1970s, when, when the festival was in the period when it was the Wolf Trap uh, Farm Park in Washington, D.C. Mark had come to play, and Anne is a native of uh, Virginia, and she had come and was a music enthusiast, and they met, fell in love, and uh, she went down to uh, Eunice, Louisiana, and they have you know, been together ever since and have raised just a, a fabulous and fabulously talented family uh, that will be performing together uh, with this group. Mark is a, a National Heritage Fellow, and I should note we have several National Heritage Fellows already announced. Del McCory is also a National Heritage Fellow. Uh, Mark is a wonderful accordion player and accordion builder, and as a guitarist and singer, and also a great documentarian for, for Cajun culture. She just released a second volume, a long-awaited second volume, of her wonderful uh, exploration, Cajun music, um, a reflection of a people. So she's done great work documenting the culture. And then they're, they're joined in the group by their two sons, Joelle Savoie and Wilson Savoie, who, who really embody so much of what their parents have passed on to them. Joelle is a great fiddler, a multi-instrumentalist, and um, a wonderful musician, but he's also the owner and operator of Balcour Records, a Grammy award-winning record label that works with Cajun and Creole music. He programs his own festivals. He documents the culture. He's done some documentaries for the National Park Service, so he's a great um, he's a great documenter and advocate for the culture. And then the fourth member is his younger brother Wilson, who affronts the Grammy Award-winning Pine Leaf Boys when he's not playing with the family band. And in addition to being a fiddler and an accordion player, uh, he's a great Jerry Lee Lewis uh, style piano player. Mm. Uh, in fact, that's one of his first instruments. And what's great about this Savoy family band is he plays a lot of piano. Uh, but just, I mean, so much talent on stage. There's a great video we have on the website I just love where Wilson and Joel are, are pre- playing a little uh, twin fiddle, a fiddle duet. And in the course of it, uh, Wilson's string pops, and you hear this loud pop to the amp. And Wilson sort of looks perplexed, and then he shrugs his shoulders and gets down on piano and just picks up where they left off. And sort of then in the video, Mark is kind of nodding along like the proud father. And there's so much about the family dynamic that, for me, that video captures. It's really beautiful. Well, let's get a little taste of uh, some Cajun music.
Why not now turn to some blues and uh, Tamika Copeland? Um, I actually sat down and watched the entire video of her on your website, and it was really striking. Uh, she's been called uh, the queen of the blues, I guess, in Chicago. Tell me a little bit about her background. Um, of course. Um, again, like so, so many of the folks we work with and the stories we try to highlight and that was at the core of, of working with folk and traditional arts are the transmission of a tradition, how it's handed out from generation to generation, whether in family or community settings. And in Shamika's case, it was her father, who was the great, uh, for blues fans, will we'll know him right away, a, a blues guitar legend in Texas, Johnny Copeland. And um, she grew up around the music, and though she was reticent at first to, to perform out in public, I mean, she clearly had, had picked it up and was something she was doing around the house. But when her father would, would sort of prompt her or encourage her to perform in public, it wasn't something she wanted to do at first. But when uh, his health started to fail, as he got later in life, um, she felt that it was her responsibility to, to carry the flame forward and felt like that's when she felt like she had sort of received the calling. and started coming out and performing, and very quickly she was a teenage blues sensation. I can remember seeing her when she was in her late teens opening for Buddy Guy, and by that, I mean, once she was opening for Buddy Guy, so that says enough, uh, but it, it also just speaks to how quickly she had taken off that before she was, and by the time she was 17, 18 years old, that's what she was doing. She was quickly identified as, as one of those artists who represented the future of the blues tradition and would really carry it forward, and but in her case, she's op- she's performing in. Though her you know her father is the influence, she's carried really more forward with the tradition of blues divas, your Ruth Browns and your Etta Jameses, and she has been declared the queen of the blues in Chicago, the person carrying forward Coco Taylor's great legacy. Matter of fact, she uh, she says that uh, she doesn't copy them, but she just takes little pieces of them and just adds them together to create her own style. Um, I guess most a lot of musicians will do that, but. Uh, it's, it certainly is reflective, I think, in the performance I saw. Yes, yeah, so, and those are, those are some, some great recent videos, and it's so great to hear you, you You were so pulled in that you watched the whole thing, because I, I thought it was fabulous myself. But, yeah, that's that's what's so important about what you how we want to think about and present and talk about folk and traditional arts. These are not things that are captured in time. It's not about repeating something over and over the same way. It's about... As something is passed on and picked up and carried forward by the next generation, they bring their own experiences and perspectives and and move it forward and innovate within it. And she's definitely done that. And uh, with with her approach to the music, uh, some of the sounds she brings in, but even more recently, as she's gotten older, feeling the need to write songs that reflect a greater concern for concern for social issues and social commentary, uh, and not not, you know, in this divided time we live in from one side or another, but just to essentially call us all to be better people. Uh, and that's why, you know, her, her until recently, what would have been her most recent album, but I guess you'd say her, the one before, what's now her most recent, uh, she wrote after she was a mother for the first time, uh, called America's Child and reflecting on kind of the world her son was coming into. And then after the, the challenging year last year, uh, which, you know, so much happened, uh, she felt the need to release an album called Uncivil War, which was just a call to, for, for all of us to, to try to get along better and listen to each other better. So she's, she's taken her songwriting in that way to try to use the blues form to, uh, to speak to a better world. As a matter of fact, she says that uh, as long as I'm here, the blues will always be with me, and I'm going to keep on doing this and make my daddy proud. Let's hear a little bit of her. 
Such uh, great lyrics. <laughs> yeah, no, she, yeah. I mean, on top, she's also just a really clever and witty songwriter. I mean, it's great stuff. Well, it turned out to uh, a West African tradition. Tell me a little bit about the the balafon. Uh, gladly. So this is a bala kuyate and samora jubate. And speaking about the balafon, the instrument they play, uh, it's probably, I think. You know, I hate going too far on the limb, but I would say fair to say this is the, probably the oldest continuous tradition we will have at the festival, and an instrument that stretches back nearly a, a millennium. The balafon is the predecessor of what people now know as the, the vibraphone or the xylophone. It um, is constructed out of, of wooden ballots. You know, visually, for those listening, uh, think about how a vibraphone or a xylophone looks. But below that, you have a hanging small calabash gourds that act as these acoustic amplifiers. And the balafon is one of the instruments that is closely identified with the uh, a tradition found throughout many cultures and societies in West Africa of what is uh, known as the jelly, or more commonly to American audiences, of the griot. And that is the keeper of the oral tradition in those, in those cultures. And um, they are oral historians, praise singers. <laughs> They resolve disputes. They advise that royal courts and the great empires like the Malian Empire and continue to advise uh, politicians in West Africa today. But very broadly speaking, they are keepers of, of an old tradition that goes, goes far back. And, and Bala, Bala's name comes from the Balafon. His family, and they still live, I mean, Bala's in uh, the Boston area now and tomorrow's in New York City, but they live um, at the border of Bali and Guinea. And through oral tradition, um, sorry, they live at the border of Mali in Guinea, I should say. Uh, through oral tradition, that his family is seen as the original keepers of the balafon. And there is one in their village that is only, has its own house and is only brought out once a year to play. And Bala's father is the current keeper of that. So this is a tradition that has been in their family literally to the beginning of oral tradition. And he's now brought that to uh, America. He's a National Heritage Fellow. And uh, is in this fascinating collaboration with with Samoro, sort of again taking its core and tradition, but pushing it in new directions uh, through a really exciting rhythm section, a wonderful percussionist with them. So it's really interesting what they're doing with this instrument that is that is so ancient. Let's uh, take a listen to this. Really, I mean, it really is almost like a xylophone in many ways.
And finally, in a minute or two we have left, uh, I want to turn to the Sri Lankan Dance Academy um, and the kind of thing that they do, uh, which I understand in part the dance was developed as a healing ritual, I guess. Uh, the legend has it to cure a king of mysterious disease. Tell me a little bit about that, that rich tradition there. Sure. Uh, so this is you know, sort of interesting to come out of this, uh, come to this after talking about Bala, because again, you talk about this tradition that really has its roots in uh, royal courts uh, going going way back, and this is a, a out of the Sri Lankan tradition. Uh, it's all it's a dance form, our traditional Sri Lankan dance that, like you noted, was originally um, f for healing, but it also has roots in courtship rituals. Um, the storytelling is a big part of it, from from sort of the mythology and origin stories. A lot of stories about Buddha. Um, so there's a lot going on. There's storytelling, there's, there's healing, it's tied to courtship rituals. And, and it was originally a dance form that was uh, dominated by, by male dancers, but it shifted over time uh, to where female dancers were featured in it. And it's, it's just a beautiful, athletic, sort of very physical and yet very beautiful at the same time, um, this dance form. So it's, it's characterized by strong, percussive stomping of feet, but very graceful and elegant movements uh, as well, of uh, you know, sort of arms and legs flowing. And this group um, represents much of what we try to do to highlight cultural communities throughout the, throughout the country and um, the best traditional artists in those communities. Uh, where they come from in the, in the Queens area of New York is the Tompkins, or sorry, the Staten Island area of New York is the Tompkinsville neighborhood, which is uh, a, a very prominent Sri Lankan population has been there for 30, 40, 50 years. And this group was founded when, the, when this population, this, this community started to emerge, and parents and other elders in the community wanted to make sure they didn't lose touch with their homeland and their traditions and their roots. And so it's been going for a lot. It started in somebody's attic, in somebody's house, and now they're, they're out, they're performing in public, they have an annual Pathum uh, Pathmangala, which is an important sort of rite of passage ritual that they've performed publicly for the first time to U.S. audiences. And it's just a wonderful group that is performing at uh, festivals throughout the country now, but starting at this effort in this community to make sure this, this tradition that goes way back was carried forward in a way to keep this immigrant community in touch with their roots back home. Well, we've been speaking with um, Lane Wade. He's the Associate Director for the National Council for the Traditional Arts. Also in studio is Caroline O'Hare. She's the local manager of the festival. And by the way, I would encourage anyone who wants to sort of see these acts in full, uh, certainly go to their webpage. It's, uh, it's just great fun to, to, to watch and to see and to enjoy. This has been Delmarva Today. I'm Don Rush. Thanks for listening.